Well, turn again this morning, if you would, to the book of Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. And I want you to notice verses 8 and 9. Hebrews chapter 1 and verses 8 and 9. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And let us pray. Father, thank you that we always have a a hearing because of our great and glorious high priest whoever lives to make intercession for us. We thank you that we have boldness to come into your presence because of the the perfection of his once-for-all work and the ongoing activity at your right hand. Thank you for the confidence that you give us to come into thy blessed holy presence and pray to thee and to, to seek thy face. And this morning I would pray for your Holy Spirit, the help of your Holy Spirit, Uh, during this time together to convey your pure holy word in a way that um, is in line with its meaning. And I do pray as well that you who are aware of our own thinking process, you might um, enlighten our own hearts and our minds to embrace the the truth of your word and to glory in it. I, I pray the effect of being together would be a deeper delight in the glory of your Son, a deeper hungering and thirsting for righteousness. I pray the effect of us being here together, we would know maybe more more deeply in our soul what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so we commit our time to you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may have had the uh, experience at uh, some point in time of having uh, two... Uh, clean-cut young young men come to your door. They have white shirts on, maybe, and ties. And um, they knock on your door, and you open the door, and one of them uh, has a name tag on. He doesn't look like he's old enough to drive, but he has a name tag on that says Elder Lewis or something like that. Then there's another one with him, and he has another name tag on that says Elder. And so you engage them in conversation, and you're aware that they are missionaries for the Mormon church. And um, for a while, if you're an evangelical Christian, they'll agree with much of what you have to say. But if you talk long enough and probe deep, deep enough, you begin to realize that they have a different view of the person of Christ, not the, the full orb, eternal Son of God view that we embrace as uh, evangelical Christians. Uh, H. Wayne House, in a book wrote, in a book entitled The Jesus We Never Knew, said, according to the, the Mormon belief system, Jesus is not the eternal Son of God as understood in Christian orthodoxy, but the spirit brother of Lucifer, and he was chosen over Lucifer to redeem humanity. And then Ron Rhodes, in a book that we have in our library, The Ten Most Important Things You Can Say to a Mormon, has a chapter entitled, Jesus is God, Not the Spirit Brother of Lucifer. And he talks a bit about Mormon theology, and then he says they do not worship or pray to Jesus What this means in terms of Mormon theology is that Jesus is not really unique. Uh, 
Well, as evangelical Christians, we do pray to Jesus, we do worship him, we do think he's glorious, we do think that he is unique. So one of the, the verses I suppose that you could regard as kind of an arrow in your quiver to pull out for these kinds of occasions would be Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8. It's a great and profound text that immediately brings out the deity of the person of Christ, which is to say that he is fully God. It emphasizes the eternal nature of the person of Christ. So here in this overall context that deals with the superiority of Christ over angels, we find the fifth quote from the Old Testament. And in contrast, really to verse 7, uh, which speaks about the subservient position of angels. It's in contrast to that. Um, here we find the sovereignty of God, as Philip Hughes writes. The sovereignty of God is declared in words taken from Psalm 45 and verse 6. And then we find this a glorious description of the being of Christ that corresponds to the declaration that we find in verse 6, and where all the angels are to worship him. So verses 8 and 9, there are a quote from Psalm 45, and verses 6 and 7. Uh, the, the title in my scriptures over Psalm chapter 45 is, A Song Celebrating the King's Marriage. Philip Hughes wrote, The psalm itself is a, a marriage ode written to celebrate a royal wedding. He indicates that the, the exact historical occasion is unknown. If you get a chance to read Psalm 45, you'll find that it differs, say, from a chapter like 2 Samuel 7 that we have considered recently, in that there's really nothing that would apply to a human king at that point in time. There are some historical references, but you won't find anything, I don't believe, that really applies to the historical situation. And um, so I think the assessment of John Brown is very helpful. He says the, the 45th Psalm, from which the quotation is made, is considered by many interpreters as a marriage of Solomon with an Egyptian princess, having, however, a, a mystical reference to the relations between Christ and the church. We apprehend, however, that this opinion, which is inconsistent with both of Jewish and Christian antiquity, is not only without evidence, but opposed to evidence. There is much to prove that the sovereign is not Solomon, is not indeed any mere mortal monarch, but the Messiah, our prince. The, the hero of this divine poem, that is Psalm, Psalm 45, the hero of this divine poem is a warrior who girds his sword on his thigh, rides in pursuit of his flying foes, thins their ranks by his sharp arrows, and reigns at last over his conquered enemies. Solomon was no warrior, but enjoyed a long reign of 40 years of uninterrupted peace. No earthly prince could with propriety be addressed as God, and no mortal could belong, belong to a perpetual dominion. Every particular in the description, interpreted according to the ordinary principles on which Old Testament prophecy is explained, is applicable to, to the Messiah. So the great focus here in our particular text is the, the son exercising royal power. The son exercising royal power. In, in our... Our perception of his ministry in that respect, I think, is deepened, and I hope will be deepened, by means of what I'm calling three contemplations related to God's only Son. So three considerations or three contemplations related to God's only Son. And the first one is this. I want you to notice the character of the Son. Uh, the, the language of verse 8 makes it very clear that our Lord's role 
in the kingdom is what is in view. Now, our second main point is going to be the kingdom of the Son, and the character of the Son and the kingdom of the Son are very closely related. Our understanding of the kingdom of the Son will be a function of our understanding of the character of the Son. Uh, because he is eternal, the kingdom over which he rules is eternal. Because he is sovereign, the kingdom over which he rules is absolute, it's unassailable. Because he is righteous, the administration of the, over the kingdom will always be marked by equity and justice. Because he is uh, fully God, it will be a glorious kingdom filled with the radiance of his glory. So there's a very close relationship here between the character of the Son and the character of the kingdom. But under this first heading, I really wanted to stress, in terms of his character, what is referred to as the deity of Christ. Or I like to call it the unambiguous deity of Christ. I, I choose those words because it's harder to imagine a, a more impactful way of making the case. This is God the Father saying to his Son, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. That's a profound, weighty, strong statement of deity. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now, we can go to um, various uh, supporting texts uh, from Scripture, such as the fact that creation is ascribed to the person of Christ, his sustaining the world and the universe he created, uh, angels worshiping him. All these things uh, contribute to our understanding of his deity, such as words that we noted last week in Isaiah chapter 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's applied to the Son in John chapter 12. However, it seems to be in terms of a, of a short, clear, concise, distilled essence kind of statement, thy throne, O God, is forever. It's a compelling, weighty statement of his deity. Its authority is, is further underscored by the fact this is God himself speaking, and it has the, the weight of Old Testament authority as well. It's frustrating, you've probably had this experience, to share a text like this with someone, and they don't buy it, they rather reject it, but they look at the same words and you expect them just to believe, yes, Jesus is God, because it seems so profound and, and clear and weighty, but I think Spurgeon is helpful. He said, blind are the eyes that cannot see God in Christ Jesus. Blind are the eyes that cannot see God in Christ Jesus. Something has to happen to the soul in order to perceive God in Christ. However, um, I think also um, from our own perspective and our, and our comings and, and goings in a world that is dominated by sin and rebels against the Most High God, there's a great need for you and I to have this full persuasion in our soul that Jesus Christ is fully God in abounding measure in all of his perfections. If you wanted to sound that note a little bit from some other uh, texts of scripture, and you're probably ahead of me on this one, but John chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the same was in the beginning uh, with God. And then you, down in verse 14, it indicates the Word became flesh. So the Word becomes something which he never was. But the, in, in the first verse, the, the, the verb was occurs three times. It's an imperfect tense, ongoing action in the past, which indicates the Word always was God. He never became God, something that he, he always was. So a great text about the deity of the person of Christ. And I, I think the testimony of Thomas is compelling in John chapter 20 as well. After eight days... Again, his disciples were inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and be not unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, 
my Lord and my God. Uh, the Apostle Peter, who confessed Christ as Messiah in 2 Peter 1, 1, we read Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So one more text, <clears throat> Titus chapter 2 and verse 13 looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So here the success of the cross is related to his deity and, and his desire for holy living for the people that he has redeemed as well. So in the first place here, we see something of the character of the Son. He is fully God. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. And relatedly and secondly, I would have you notice the kingdom of the Son, or the kingdom of the Son of God. Now that the Messianic kingdom is primarily in view here is seen by the mention of the term throne and also a scepter of the kingdom. And under this heading, I would have you consider three aspects of this kingdom, three aspects of the kingdom. And part of my great motive this morning is simply to intensify in our souls the great blessing it is to be a part of this eternal kingdom. It's an incomparable, infinite privilege to be a part of this kingdom. That's kind of what I, I hope that we will leave with this morning, that reality. So um, here are three aspects of this kingdom. Well, number one, it's an eternal kingdom. Thy throne, O Lord, is thy, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. So this we, this we noted, it's based on the character of the being of Christ um, Eternality is a function of deity. It's a function of being God. Uh, the Catechism, question five, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And, and this language of, of being eternal from Psalm 45 and verses six and seven, it, it brings it into the orb of the Davidic covenant that we have mentioned uh, recently, uh, a king and a kingdom that rules forever and ever. You might recall a little bit of the content of Second Samuel chapter seven, verse 13, he shall establish he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Psalm 89, which also deals with the Davidic covenant. I made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. And, and what this does also, the fact that his kingdom goes on forever and ever, it does prepare our mind for the, the nature of our Lord's ministry as a high priest, which is very central uh, to the book of Hebrews. Just to kind of give you a sense of that, uh, Hebrews 6.20, where Jesus has entered as forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, verse 17 of chapter 7, makes the same point, verse 24 of chapter 7. But he, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Uh, verse 28, for the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever." And so, so being his, being our high priest will be, I believe, a perpetual reminder that all the benefits we have of being in the kingdom are tied to his sacrificial work. So he's our high priest forever, and we will be reminded into eternity that the benefits we enjoy of being in the kingdom is tied directly to his sacrificial work in our behalf on the cross. Um, so the first characteristic of the kingdom is eternity. A second is righteousness. Righteousness. 
The righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. A scepter has a reference to a, a staff or a stick that rulers employed. Uh, Gareth Cockerell wrote, the scepter of your kingdom. It's the scepter of uprightness par excellence. The rule of the divine son now seated at God's right hand is righteous or upright in a way no other has ever been. For it's the exercise of God's own sovereign righteous rule so desired by the Old Testament prophets. And Philip Hughes, along the same lines, wrote, The Davidic throne is eternally distinguished by justice and righteousness. And of the messianic son of David, it is said that with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Plainly, the perspective of messianic expectation envisaged not merely an approximation, but an identification of the kingdom of Christ with the kingdom of God. For to God, the psalmist declares, righteousness and justice are the foundation of thy throne. So this brings out something of the righteousness and the glory of this kingdom. And F.F. Bruce is helpful along the same lines. He wrote, his too, it's the only kingdom characterized by perfect righteousness. The righteousness and justice, which are the foundation of God's throne, are equally uh, the, the foundation of the Messiah's throne. Isaiah eleven five. also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist, which is to say the Messiah is personally devoted to those principles of equity and uprightness, which it is, which it is his royal prerogative to maintain. I want to suggest there are three implications of this aspect of the kingdom. It's marked by righteousness. The, the first one is this, and I, I think it's fair to conclude that in, in, the, in the process of true conversion, there will be a, a level in the soul, an awareness of this righteousness. I, I believe it's fair to say that when a person is converted, there will be, some, and this is a positive aspect of conversion, there will be some sense in the soul of the righteousness of the person of Christ. And, and I, say, I say so based on the combination of two verses. Colossians 1.13 says, He delivered us from the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In other words, this is something that God did um, that we could not do. He transported us from one kingdom to the other. And when we ask, well, what is the character of the kingdom that he transported us to? Romans 14, 17 says, The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So I think it's fair to conclude, when a person is converted, there will be some awareness in the soul of the character of the righteousness of the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. A second implication is that this righteousness becomes our pursuit in the process of sanctification. This righteousness, conformity to that standard, becomes the object of our pursuit in the process of sanctification. I'm thinking here of 1 Timothy 6.11. It says, flee from these things. And the things to flee from there is the love of money and everything that goes along with that. Flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. In 2 Timothy 2.22, flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. A fleeing is the idea of running away from something, some force. One time I was 11 years old, and I remember um, going down, the, I, well, I had a, I don't know what in the world I was thinking, I don't tell anybody about this, but I, I, I went down the alley to 64th Street, it's an arterial in Tacoma, and I had a a raw egg, and I threw it at a car. It was going, and it was a good shot, you know. I, I hit the car, 
And then uh, about, you know, a few teenager types, the, the car pulled over and a few teenager types got out of the car. And, and so what I did is, is I immediately went the other direction. I mean, rather rapidly. Um, and I found uh, solace under Mr. Kepler's truck just so you know everything turned out okay. But, but the idea is that is the idea of, of fleeing. Uh, it's not just you're jogging. It's not just that you're running. You're, you're moving from a force that could do you harm. Okay, that, that's the idea. And in sanctification, we're doing something very much like that. We're fleeing from forces that can do our soul harm, the love of money, useful, any kind of sin, fleeing youthful lust. We're fleeing from that. And according to these texts, we're especially focusing on righteousness. And the Bible says, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. So it's, it's a central aspect of the sanctification process. We are to pursue righteousness. Now, if you, if you want a deeper sense in your soul of this kind of righteousness, what is it really like? That is the product of ongoing devotional assimilation of the word of God. If you want a sense in your soul of what this righteousness is like, that will be the result of an ongoing devotional assimilation of the word of God. Because the great verse on the inspiration of scripture is also scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That, that, that's the, so the more that we subject our minds to Holy Scripture um, and have the collective influence of Holy Scripture on our soul, the more we'll, we'll know what righteousness is really like. Well, there's a, a third implication that the kingdom is going to be marked by righteousness, and that is a, in the midst of a perpetually evil, sinful, fallen world that we live in, the unhindered reality and display of our Lord's righteousness, this is a great anticipation. This is a third implication. This becomes the great anticipation of our soul because Second Peter 3.13 says, according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So the kind of righteousness that we experience in conversion that conforms to the character of Christ does not and will not prevail in this world as you know. Um, it's obvious, but it will dwell, it will be prominent and pervasive in the world to come. Well, then there's a, a third characteristic of this kingdom. It's eternal, it's marked by righteousness, and then thirdly, it's marked by the absolute sovereignty of the Lord, the absolute sovereignty of the person of Christ. This is brought out by the language, thy throne, as well as the righteous scepter of the kingdom. Scepter, it's a symbol of power and sovereignty, one puts it, royal authority symbolized by a scepter. Another commentator, the scepter underscores the sovereignty of the son. John Brown, who I appreciate, wrote, A throne is the seat on which a king sits when he administers judgment or performs other royal functions. It is naturally employed as a figurative expression for royal power and authority. A tottering throne is expressive of insecure dominion. The subversion of the throne is an emblem of a revolution. A stable throne expresses well-established authority. An everlasting throne, a perpetual kingdom. When it is said of God that his throne is forever and ever, excuse me, of the Son, that his throne is forever and ever, the meaning is he is invested with supreme dominion, and this dominion shall never be taken from him. Christ said on one occasion, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. How do we know that is the case? Because of his eternal sovereign rule, there is no power that can frustrate the accomplishing of his redemptive purposes. So in the first place here, we see the character of the Son. Secondly, the kingdom of the Son are both closely related to one another. Then in the third place, just think for a few moments about the obedience of the Son. The obedience of the Son. Here I'm thinking particularly of verse 9 
Thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy companions. Now, the words, thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness, I, I believe they are especially apply to our Lord's earthly ministry. Obviously, that's always the way he was, but here I think it especially applies to his earthly ministry, the spiritual ethical realities uh, that um, related to his time in this world. And this is because of, of the consequence of this kind of character was that he was anointed with the oil of, of gladness. The oil, being anointed with the oil of gladness, again, here I think it's a reference to his exaltation to the right hand of God the Father. A couple of more preliminary thoughts under this, uh, this third point. Because I am persuaded that the, the phrase, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness, depicts his earthly ministry, um, it's also, I think it's right to put them under the category of obedience. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. I'm arguing here that should be thought of underneath the category of obedience. Now here's why. Chapter 5 and verse 8 says he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. He learned In his earthly ministry, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. And I would argue he suffered in this world because he loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. The reason he suffered in this world is because he was a righteous and holy man. That's the reason that people hated him. That's the reason he testified against this world that it was sinful. And this world hated him because of his character, because he loved righteousness and he hated lawlessness. He suffered because he was a righteous and holy man. And then a second preliminary point here, the lexicon that I employ, lawlessness is a frame of mind opposed to righteousness. What is lawlessness? It's a frame of mind that's opposed to um, righteousness. It's a term that helps us to um, understand the nature of sin. First John 3, 4, sin is lawlessness. Helps us to understand the source and depth of sin. Matthew 23, 28, even so you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. It, this is the characteristic of all unsaved, and this is the reason for their eternal separation from the being of God. It's lawlessness. Uh, our Lord said in Matthew seven twenty two, many will say to me on, on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Um, and it, it's this Reality that's dealt with in true conversion. This is, again, much of the glory of conversion. Uh, in Romans chapter 4, it says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. That's what happens when we are converted. We're forgiven for our lawless deeds. So there, there's something, at least, of the propriety of regarding our Lord's loving righteousness and hating lawlessness, seeing that be, as being a function of his obedience during his earthly ministry. And in light of that, I would have you consider just two facets of this obedience. The first, and this is pretty, pretty obvious, I think, we notice the depth of our Lord's obedience, which means it was not marked by superficiality. He loved righteousness and he hated lawlessness. This was not feigned. It was not pretended. It was the expression of his holy nature. It was just a display of who he really was. And I, I, would, I would suggest also that if our true sanctification is conformity to Christ, if you're with me on that, if you agree with that, our, our true sanctification being increasingly set apart for God, if that's the same as being conformed to the image of Christ, then sanctification has to abide much in the affections. 
Our, our sanctification has to include the affections. Um, and the fact of the matter is it does. The Bible tells us what not to love. It says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Um, it tells us what we are to, uh, to hate. Psalm 119, 163, I hate every false way. It tells us what we are not to love. Conversely, it tells us what we are to love. I, I love thy law. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our might. So if true, what I'm saying here, if true sanctification is being conformed to the image of Christ, it must be replicating in our own lives, at least in some measure, the affections of Christ is is much of what true sanctification is all about. It's it's loving what he loved. It's hating what he hated. So we see here that the depth of our Lord's obedience, and then notice secondly the consequence of his obedience or the result of his obedience. The result of of loving righteousness and hating lawlessness. Therefore. God thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness. That's the effect. That's the result of his obedience. I think the phrase above thy companions in this context refers to other earthly rulers. And, and anointed refers to his exaltation to the right hand of God the Father. Um, Gareth Cockerwell, Cockerill wrote, declaring the exaltation by which he entered into the exercise of his sovereign rule, O God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Anointing with the oil of gladness is a clear, excuse me, a clear reverence to exaltation. The oil of gladness anticipates the joy set before Jesus in chapter 12. It's a festive, joyful anointing suitable for the celebration described also in chapter 12. And John Brown adds this, to be anointed with the oil of gladness is, is to be invested with such a regal office as is well fitted to communicate satisfaction and happiness. So my main point here is there, there's no other kingdom like this. There's no other kingdom that is eternal. There's no other kingdom in, in which righteousness dwells. And there's no other kingdom where there's true joy and peace and happiness because there's no other kingdom where there is not sin and not pain and not suffering and not death. This is it. So it's, it's a glorious kingdom. And I, I'm persuaded it has to be the fulfillment of Psalm 1611. Thou will show me the path of life and thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. Well, I could go on, but I don't have any more notes here, so I should probably just pray. Father, I ask that you would take what we've considered this morning and apply it to our hearts. We thank you that we did not seek you. We could not have sought you, but you have sought us and that you have delivered us from the domain of evil and darkness and eternal destruction, and you've delivered us we thank you to the kingdom of your dear son we thank you it's a kingdom in which righteousness dwells we thank you it's a kingdom characterized by joy and peace in the holy spirit and i i pray that you would cause us to glory in what you have been pleased to do for us and the the glorious eternal implications it has for us so i pray you would use our time uh, together not only for your honor and your glory, but I pray for the benefit of the souls of each one that is here this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.